I sent so many cold emails. I uh, tried so hard to set up meetings with all these different institutions, and nobody was really taking us seriously. You know, we're talking about blockchain, and in places like Africa, people, most people are asking us, "What is that? Like, what, what exactly are you talking about?" So I actually decided to walk into this one bank. I went up to the secretary and I'm like, "Hey, I, I have a meeting with one of your board members." Hey listeners, welcome to the 2020 show, where we try to decipher what the world past 2020 will look like. I'm your host and 2020 grad, Angelina Reindering. Let's dive in. This week, we are thrilled to welcome Victor Mapunga onto the 2020 show. In Africa, there are over 400 million citizens without proper identification. Most of them cannot get credit or formal employment because they're unable to prove who they are. Zimbabwe native, Victor is the man on the front line working to solve this billion dollar problem. His company, Flex Fintechs, is currently running a pilot program with the largest commercial bank in Zimbabwe to finally make banking more accessible. So Victor, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be a part of this. Yeah, for sure. So um, let's just jump right in. So to start off, our listeners are mostly from the US and Canada. So to help give us a bit of background, can you explain why you decided to start Flex Fintechs? For example, can you describe your personal experience trying to set up a bank account? Awesome. So it's 2018 um, and I just come back to Zimbabwe from the UK. And I'm in the process of working with a couple of friends of mine on, um, on this business, uh, a side project that we decided to do. So I want to register a bank account in order to start processing those transactions. So I walk into the banking hall in my local city of Mutare, um, and I begin the process. I request the registration form so that I can fill it in. In my mind, I'm thinking it's going to take me maybe, I don't know, 10, 20 minutes to fill in the form and submit everything. Uh, but to my surprise, as I'm going through the form, there's a lot of fields I can't seem to fill in. One of the most interesting fields um, was my proof of residency. And I remember asking the lady uh, at the counter what she wanted from me. She's like, you know, you can give us your water bill or electricity bill. And I'm like, but none of those are in my name. Um, I live uh, with my mom, so everything is in her name. And all of a sudden, this was a problem. And again, they started requesting for more identification details that I simply couldn't provide. So I found it to be quite funny and odd. So I started asking people in the banking hall, just out of curiosity, what their experience was with registering a bank account. And one guy who had traveled over 100 kilometers from his rural place told me it had been over a month trying to set up an account. And I was like, something is not right here. So over the next few weeks, I started investigating the problem, asking people. I traveled to every single bank branch in the city, and I would just ask them for their registration forms. And I would go through each form, question by question, trying to see why it was so difficult for a person to register an account. And that's when I realized that the problem had to do with identity. So I called up my, my co-founder, uh, my now co-founder, who was a good friend of mine who I met when I was in the U.S., and we started talking about the problem a little bit more. He was from India, but he was now in Canada, um, and he had vast experience with uh, software development and blockchain technology, uh, to be precise. And over the next few weeks, we started talking about what kind of a solution we could drum up. And essentially, after figuring out what we had to do, that's how Flex Fintechs was actually born, uh, with our flagship product, which is called Flex ID. Right, so can you give me a bit more information? And so what exactly Flex Fintechs does? How does it solve this problem? Awesome. 
So a Flex ID is a digital identity wallet which stores an individual's verifiable credentials that they would have been given by an issuer such that a verifier can verify a person's information. So you can think of a Flex ID um, in the form of a physical wallet that you already have. You have your you know, national ID in there, maybe you have your driver's license in there, maybe you have your student card or your employer card or whatever piece of credential that you need to authenticate yourself whenever you want to do a specific task. So a Flex ID essentially takes this concept and it builds it on top of a decentralized ledger such that an individual can have verifiable credentials that are cryptographically secure and can be verified by a verifier that wants to know something about you. So an example is if I want to register a bank account, the bank wants to know my KYC, the know your customer information. So they want something like my national ID credential and they also want something like my proof of residence credential. Sometimes they might want the proof of employment credential, depending on the account that I want to set up. So with the Flex ID, the government or an issuing authority in this case would issue an individual something called a verifiable credential, which is essentially a very cryptographically secure piece of information that says something about you. And a verifier, like a bank in this case, would request that you actually present that with them and they can verify that information. So instead of having to fill in a laborious form or having to provide mountains and mountains of paper documentation, you can go on the bank's website or on their mobile app and you can request to register an account and they would ask you, can you share your Flex ID credentials with us? And you have the ability to accept or decline. And if you accept that, then the bank would receive those verifiable credentials that you would have gotten from an issuer. So the way our ecosystem works is essentially we have three main parties. We have issuers, which are trusted authorities that issue you those credentials. So you can think of a government, you can think of a university, you can think of a hospital, you can think of an insurance company as an issuer of a credential. And we have holders of the credential, which are essentially users. So you and I or any other person that's going to use the Flex ID platform. And lastly, we have verifiers. And verifiers make up the aggregate demand for credentials. And a verifier in this case is any party that wants to verify some piece of information about you. It could be your employer trying to verify your university degree. It could be a bank trying to verify your KYC. It could be an insurance company trying to verify your insurance policy when you make a claim. So it can be a wide array of different institutions all participating under this one ecosystem. So essentially, that's how a Flex ID would operate under normal circumstances. And any user would have a mobile app. And in Africa, we have the option to have a WhatsApp chat board or USSD interfaces that don't require high broadband or internet access. So we have low barriers of entry for people that might not have good internet or they might not have laptops or you know, high-end smartphones such that they are also able to interface with that wallet directly without any hassles. Right, and on the, on the last note that you mentioned, do you know what the numbers look like in terms of people who don't have access to broadband access or uh, broad, broadband internet or um, smartphones with larger um, memory capacities? Yeah, so over the past, over the past 10 years, uh, internet penetration in Africa and in Zimbabwe has been rising quite high. Uh, from 2016 to about 2018, we had over 100% uh, penetration rate for internet and mobile smartphones. So the numbers have been rising steadily. In Zimbabwe, I think half of the population 
now has one phone or two, and this includes both smartphones and feature phones. So a good chunk of the adult population, uh, more than 70%, um, now has at least some form of mobile interface that they can use. Broadband access is still definitely a work in progress. It's not 100%. Um, we have 3G uh, covering over 90% of the country. And in terms of the continent, that's uh, well over 60% now. But in terms of your 4G and LTE, those numbers are still considerably below 40%. So a lot of work is still being done, but the numbers and the internet penetration rates have been promising, especially mobile. Um, unfortunately, because of something like COVID, um, the number of smartphones expected to actually ship in Africa this year is expected to drop. Uh, but prior to this, um, it was actually promising. Uh, in most cases, in places like Zimbabwe, people actually have more than one phone. So a person might have a smartphone and a feature phone. Um, it's actually pretty common for people to have more than one phone. So it's actually quite promising in terms of uh, what the uptake of mobile technology has been and is going to be over the next five years. Right. But at least for the time being, it, it seems like it is very important to make sure that this technology is as accessible as possible in order to really reach as many people as possible. Oh, definitely. Right. So if you look at the usage of popular messaging platforms, I think in Africa, WhatsApp is the most popular uh, application. And in Zimbabwe too, it actually comprises of over 40% of the total internet traffic in the country. Uh, just to show you just how much people have embraced um, mobile applications, especially that use low data and have very readable and usable UI and UX interfaces. So with, with time, uh, a bulk of the population is definitely going to have access to the internet. Another important uh, aspect to remember is the bulk of the population in Zimbabwe and in Africa as a whole is still very much below the age of 19. So over half of the population is actually below the age of 19. Um, and Zimbabwe has a population of about 16 million people. So about 8 million of those people are still very young children that are either in school, or their infants and of the remainder eight million uh, we actually have a vast majority of those guys using uh, internet technology right so looking at flex fintechs from a bit of a broader lens again um, can you tell me a bit about some of the clients that you're working with for example that large commercial bank yeah so one of the interesting things that actually uh, happened with us was when we started this about two years ago uh, we started engaging with different financial institutions and nobody would really take our call. Like, you know, I sent so many cold emails. I uh, tried so hard to set up meetings with all these different institutions and nobody was really taking us seriously. You know, we're talking about blockchain and essentially, you know, the, this is a very new technology and in places like Africa, people, most people are asking us, what is that? Like, what, what exactly are you talking about? So I actually decided to walk into this one bank the other day and I went up to the secretary I'm like, hey, I, I have a meeting with one of your board members. Uh, and I was very convincing she, she actually believed me. Um, and after doing that, I actually walked in and I, I, you know, I pitched my, my case. And from that day onwards, I started working with that institution and I started you know, gaining more contacts within the industry. So one of the most interesting organizations we're working with is the Commercial Bank of Zimbabwe, which is uh, the largest bank in Zimbabwe. And we have an upcoming pilot uh, where we will be trying to roll out Flex ID to a specific segment of their clientele, especially um, their farmers and those in the rural areas to solve some problems uh, around how those guys are identified whenever they have to engage in government subsidies or uh, in terms of payroll and payouts that they actually have to get. So it's an interesting uh, pilot that we're working on. And over the next three months, uh, results should actually be coming up. It's also the first um, pilot of this nature in the region. So it's actually a big plus. 
So we're still working on that and a lot of the details are still a little bit hush-hush, but over the next few months, uh, the public will actually get to know what it is that we're actually doing and, and how that's actually gonna help thousands and thousands of people that never before could access such services. Yeah, I mean, it's really great to hear stories like that. That story about you walking into that bank. I mean, that is just bootstrapping. That is hustle to the core, to the T. It's really, really great to hear stories like that about entrepreneurs really, really pushing through and making these amazing ideas, these concepts into a reality. So tell me about your experience as an entrepreneur in Zimbabwe. Was this company completely bootstrapped? Oh, yeah, 100%, right? So... Uh, one of the most interesting things about us is we're one of the very few companies that has continuously decided to work in this area despite raising zero funding. So when we actually started this, you know, um, I tried reaching out to some early stage investors, angel investors. Uh, I applied to so many accelerators. I applied to so many uh, programs that had grant financing. And in every case, we kept getting rejected. Um, and part of the reason was the context in which we were coming from so many venture capitalists and so many funders just couldn't relate. Um, it's important to know that um, the vast majority of venture capital in the world is monopolized in a few countries uh, and in a few cities, to be honest. You know, you're looking at California, you're looking at New York, you're looking at Massachusetts, you're looking at maybe London, uh, you're looking at maybe Toronto. Um, and these are just the few places in the world that actually hold the vast majority of the world's venture capital. Now here comes uh, an African startup, a South African startup from a country, you know, some of these uh, investors have never heard of, have never been to, and they're talking about a uh, problem that frankly speaking has been solved in first world countries. So it's kind of interesting to try and explain a problem to someone in a Western country that essentially doesn't exist there. So identity is one of those areas where the US and Canada and all these other countries have uh, over the years invested billions and billions of dollars in actually fixing and making sure a bulk of the population is properly identified you know, for taxation, for financial inclusion and all of that. Um, I think in the US, financial inclusion is well over 90% uh, versus in Africa where financial inclusion um, is well over uh, is less than 50%. So a bulk of the population still doesn't have access to financial services. Over 400 million people in Africa don't even have access to basic identification or basic financial services. So there's a massive problem. And for investors, you have to sort of... Uh, engage them in the story of why this is a problem, uh, of why a lack of identity is an issue. Because if you have identity, um, you don't really see how the world could be bad if you didn't have it. Uh, it's only when you don't have adequate documentation that you realize that, oh, I actually can't get a bank account. And if I can't get a bank account, I can't get credit. And if I can't get credit, I can't start my business. And if I can't start my business, then I have to be informal. And I have to work in the informal sector, which has limited capital constraints, which has limited regulation, and has all sorts of other problems that make it difficult to climb the socioeconomic ladder. So explaining that to Western investors, you know, accelerators, all of that proved to be quite of a challenge. So my co-founder and I decided, we're like, look, man, let's continue building our product. Let's continue uh, seeing what the market actually demands. Let's continue working with what we have in our two hands. And we became very lean. I moved out of my mom's house and I went to the capital city uh, in Harare and I started renting out a place so that I could be closer to the banks. I could be closer to the clients that we had to talk to. Whilst my co-founder, who's in Waterloo, um, continuously built 
with the product, continuously engaged um, in the technical ecosystem around digital identity and around blockchain. And we've been doing that for the past two years, um, zero funding whatsoever. So it's actually pretty interesting that we've managed to go so far with um, basically having raised absolutely zero dollars. Um, our competitors in other countries have raised you know, a couple millions of dollars, but uh, in terms of our tax stack, it's comparable. I would argue, and I might be biased, we might even be better in terms of how our technology approaches this problem because we've had to have a deep appreciation of what the local market really demands, um, of what the people in the market really demand. So it, it, it's been a very interesting journey around that. Right, that's a very interesting point that you bring up. The lack of identity, constraints innovation. So once you figure a way around this problem, it seems like floodgates will just, will just be opened and the potential for growth in, the, in your industry and parallel industries will be monumental. So it seems like there is a lot of growth, but looking at it from an investor standpoint, especially a foreign investor standpoint, I understand where you know individuals might be fearful about entering in this new market, which they have absolutely no context for. Like you said, we have mostly figured out this issue in um, most developing countries where the VC capital is centered. So it's very difficult to seek foreign funding. Um, so my next question is about another venture that you have worked on, uh, Motapa. So can you tell me a bit more about what it is? What is the concept behind it? And what is the goal? Yeah, awesome, awesome. So uh, the story of Motapa is actually very, very interesting. So I'll, I'll actually just start by the name itself. So the name Motapa comes from um, the Motapa Empire, which was uh, a very powerful empire that existed in Southern Africa, uh, you know, from the you know 15th century going onwards, um, and it expanded from you know, you know the Indian Ocean part of Africa all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, and and it had all this mythology around it about you know how it came to be and how advanced uh, a civilization the people were, uh, the culture that you know that they actually inhibited. It's a part of, of Zimbabwean history that I'm personally uh, in love with, particularly because. Uh, you know, my totem is similar to the totem of, of the people that actually belonged to, to the Motapa Empire. So uh, for me, it became uh, a story about how we can bring back that glory uh, back into African people um, and what we can actually do. I mean, you can think of it as bringing Wakanda, uh, you know, sort of uh, into the modern world. So Motapa actually started off as a fashion brand. And we would make African-themed clothing, uh, hoodies, T-shirts, dresses. And we made these high-end um, clothing items that we would sell to people who wanted to connect with their African heritage. Um, and we would ship some of these products to North America, to the U.S., where you know, some African-American individuals wanted to connect back with their African roots. Uh, and for me, Motapa was uh, something I would use to get some income since Flex essentially wasn't revenue generating, since at Flex Fintechs we were generating revenues, I would use some of the funds we got from Motapa to actually uh, take care of myself. So I co-founded it with my friend uh, who actually graduated from MIT and we got accepted into MIT Sandbox, which is a program that supports um, startups and projects by you know MIT students and those that have just graduated. So we got a little bit of funding and we invested that in making those clothing items and shipping them. And as we started doing that, we came up with an interesting model um, for distributed and decentralized manufacturing. So the way Africa works is a lot of industries had collapsed, right? A lot of textile companies basically don't exist here. And what you have is you have thousands and thousands of artisanal tailors that make products on the go. So we were like, 
what if we came up with like an Uber for, for manufacturing um, and we would create a platform where we'd have all these tailors making our Motaba clothing uh, via this platform. So we would have like a virtual factory, essentially, where we'd have different tailors from across the country making clothing items for us. So, you know, late last year, from October to December, we actually did that pilot and we had over 20 tailors that actually came on board and we discovered that we could make more than a hundred hoodies and more than a hundred uh, pieces of clothing, articles of clothing in like six hours by just distributing the manufacturing to different people. And we had different problems, you know, uh, we started running across quality control problems. How do you make sure all these guys are coming up uh, or are making products of high quality? And, you know, as we started getting into the industry more and more, uh, starting early this year, we discovered there was even a bigger problem that was uh, facing these artisanal tailors and small businesses which is once you've made a product, how do you actually get it to market? So when COVID-19 actually hit, that kind of put a hold on our manufacturing and we had to start thinking of how our business was going to pivot, how it was going to survive. And from the market data we got, we actually realized that the biggest problem that informal and small businesses across Africa were facing is how do they take their products digital and how do they then sell those products to different markets? And that's how Motapa online stores was then built. So basically, what our pivot became was Motapa Online Stores um, is a platform that allows small businesses and merchants to basically set up uh, online stores within five to 10 minutes, um, connected to their payments, connected to their logistics, and connected to their addressing, such that we can have e-commerce happening even at an informal level. So you can think of Motapa Online Stores as Shopify, but essentially um, targeted primarily for this niche uh, informal market space that's in Africa. I say niche, but it's not small. Uh, in a country like Zimbabwe, for example, we have a 90% unemployment rate. Almost everybody is an entrepreneur. Almost everybody has a side hustle. And a lot of people then use Facebook or WhatsApp to do their business. Uh, but this has scalability problems. These platforms who have issues to do with fraud, they have issues to do with payment. Like if you are selling your products via WhatsApp, you're going to only reach a couple of hundred people. And how are they going to pay for your products? So we decided to solve that problem by creating a very, very easy platform for people to quickly build their own e-commerce platforms, list their products, and actually sell them. So again, for that project, we found a financial partner, a financial institution that we're working with that will start onboarding some of their merchants to, to, to create those e-commerce stores that we can actually, um, that they can actually then sell their products online. So yeah, that, that's essentially the story of Motapa. It's, it's been a very interesting, it's been a very interesting journey because we started off just selling t-shirts from the, from literally the boot of my car. Uh, and now we've pivoted to this online store platform and we, we're, we're getting a lot of traction there. Yeah, that's a really, really great story. On the note of um, Motapa, can you tell me a bit about how the work that you're doing with this startup maybe connects with what you have done with Flex Fintechs and your Flex Fin ID? Yeah, so it's a very interesting relationship uh, that has emerged as a result of that. And if you look at how we use the internet today, well, we've invested a lot of money and infrastructure into our payment network, into our cloud infrastructure, but we haven't really done that much when it comes to our identity. So if you buy something in North America, you're probably buying it from Amazon, or you're probably buying it from eBay, um, or you're probably buying it from another e-commerce platform that you know and trust. But in Africa, you are buying it from individuals across the country, across the continent that you've never met and you've 
no idea whether or not the product they put out there is the product you're going to get. So an interesting thing that happens, a friend of mine runs a trading business via WhatsApp. So she buys products um, from China or she buys products from Zambia. And basically she tries selling these products uh, via her contacts in a WhatsApp group or she advertises them on social media. And sometimes when she wants to buy products, she has to buy them from people across different WhatsApp groups. And the typical problem she often faces is she sees a product someone has advertised and the person says, well, send me money. And then she sends money to that person, but then the product never comes. The product is never delivered. And how does she track that person? How does she get a refund back? She can't because essentially everything is so informal. So the way Web 3.0 is really going to work is for every e-commerce transaction that's going to happen, you're not only going to have a payments protocol, but you're going to need to have an identity protocol that authenticates the person and the business you are dealing with. Such that you have a much safer ecosystem of buyers and sellers. So for example, if you're going to use Motapa to register your business, you're going to have to submit a form of KYC. And you can think of how individuals can use their Flex IDs to essentially register an online store, an e-commerce platform, such that we eliminate the risk of nefarious individuals and nefarious third parties that might want to scam people. One of the biggest problems we've had with online commerce in Africa is there's so much scam around products being sold around. Sometimes you pay a person and the, it turns out they don't exist. It turns out the products they have are from another website and you have all these different issues that then arise. But with Flex ID, essentially you can imagine a scenario where another layer of identity is going to be added such that transactions that are done across multiple parties, across multiple B2B parties uh, or uh, C2B parties involve some method of identity verification. You need to know who you're dealing with. You need to know who you're sending money to, and you need to know that your product is actually going to come. So I actually see a synergy where these two companies and essentially these two industries, for me, it's bigger than just Mutab or Flex ID. It's how do we create a new infrastructure on the internet that eliminates some of the bottlenecks we've had around uh, identity verification, around privacy. You know, Flex ID, for example, is, is a self-sovereign identity. So individuals have complete 100% control over their data. So if you're going to use your Flex ID for anything, it's always going to be with your consent. Um, and for us, that's a very big issue. So I honestly see Africa as the only place or one of the few places in the world that has the capability of adopting these solutions because, again, we don't have the legacy infrastructure that would inhibit the adoption of, of both these technologies. So I, I do see a synergy where commerce and payments are going to need an identity layer on top of them uh, for them to be way more safer than they are today and a little bit more efficient as to how transactions and payments are then settled across multiple parties. Right. It, it really is. It really does seem like a blank canvas in a lot of senses. And because of that, you have this opportunity to repaint it in a way that would be much more efficient than how other markets are doing it. So that is a really, really interesting to be in my interesting place to be, in my opinion. Um, more on the looking at Motapa from a bit of a broader perspective. Why don't your customers just use Shopify? What is the difference between what you're offering and for and from what a company like Shopify is offering? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question. Um, and the way to answer this question uh, is very essential. It's very simple. Um, Shopify and a lot of other, you know, Western platforms that were developed were not developed with the idea of informal markets that you find in Africa. 
Africa uh, as their target market, right? So for example, if you go on Shopify, um, you know, you're going to get a free trial for maybe two weeks. And after that, you're going to need to have a subscription. You're going to need to pay for that. Now, remember, in Africa, most people don't have bank accounts. Most people don't have Visa cards. They don't have MasterCards. They're not going to pay a subscription um, to a foreign company because they don't even have the on-ramp to make that payment even if they wanted to. Uh, this is a similar problem that even companies like Netflix face in, in African markets, which is I might want a Netflix account, but paying for it is actually a problem, especially if I'm not within the formal uh, financial space. And then secondly, you have to then look at how the platform itself is created for a specific market. Motapa was created with the African and informal market and small business uh, in mind. We are trying to take the person that is selling their product in WhatsApp, that is selling their product on Facebook, the person that is selling their uh, product at Mbare Musika, which is an informal market in Zimbabwe, uh, it's like a flea market, essentially, uh, very unregulated. Um, and there's so hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people that come there every day. And, you know, they transact millions of dollars in cash, right? So we are, we're thinking of how do you take a person who is selling their products informally uh, such that their products can actually have a global audience that can actually appreciate some of this. So an example of it is there's a lot of sculptures and artists that you find in Africa, very talented guys, but they, they sell their products on the roadsides, all right? And whenever a tourist comes into Zimbabwe and they see these products, they're like, wow, these are very beautiful products. Can I buy it online? And then the person is like, I have no idea how to sell this product online. So that person then has a very limited market in Zimbabwe. You know, a person in Canada, for example, cannot appreciate um, some of the artwork and some of the jewelry that is being created by all these artisanal people in emerging markets. They can't appreciate some of the clothing uh, and artistic clothing that has been created in emerging markets. We are creating an on-ramp for those people to easily then have a global audience for their products. And we are doing so by making sure that it's easy for them to set up even without a bank account. So you don't need a bank account to set up Motapa. You don't need a Visa card. You don't need a MasterCard. You just need a phone number. You need a phone number and you need a mobile money number, a mobile wallet account that allows you to then receive payments when people pay for your products. So we are really targeting our market like that, such that even a person that has never stepped foot in a banking hall is going to have an e-commerce platform and they're going to receive payments directly on their mobile phone using their mobile wallet account. And that's something that essentially has never been done um, anywhere in the world, in my opinion. Uh, and we're really zoning in on that market, which for the most part forms the largest aspect of, of economic activity across emerging markets. Mm, that, that is very interesting. Um, okay, so I'm a Canadian, you are from Zimbabwe, but somehow we're gonna end up talking about the US because that's what we talk about. <laughs> so um, over the past few weeks, there have been numerous atrocities that have recently been really prevalent in the public eye. For example, the murder of George Floyd, Floyd Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud, Ahmaud Arbery. They've all come to the attention of the public. And in the time in between, even more killings have occurred. Myself and many other Canadians, we feel the weight of these crimes heavily on the shoulders because we realize that our situation is not much better. As a citizen of Zimbabwe, how do you relate to the events that are unfolding in the US? For example, do you feel that somehow police brutality in the US impacts individuals living in other countries like Zimbabwe? Yeah, so, you know, so, so that's a very um, deep question. And I think the events that have happened over the past uh, few months in the U.S. are not new. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think historically, if you look at, you know, cases of police brutality, if you look at cases of racial injustice, it has been an ongoing problem now uh, in the U.S. Um, for a very, very long time. And looking at the U.S. as the global superpower and the global economic powerhouse, most countries look at the U.S. and how, what their domestic policy is. And in terms of emerging markets, they look at that and sometimes they replicate that. So injustice anyway, injustice for one person, whether it's a person of color or not, it's injustice for everybody. Uh, it reflects on the necessary improvements that have to be done systemically in terms of how police deal with citizens, how police handle protests, how police should also handle people of color, uh, whether they're black, Asian, or Latino. Um, and in countries like Zimbabwe and in other emerging and African countries, you do have cases of police brutality as well. Um, and the problem is the U.S. doesn't now have the moral high ground to look at countries in Africa and say, you need to fix your human rights issues. Uh, which have been some of the most prevalent problems we've seen in emerging markets, uh, where you have so many human rights violations by governments in African countries, by police in African countries, whether it's by police or by military. And the U.S. has always been a strong advocate for human rights. Uh, but as of lately, um, you know, the U.S. has really lost that moral high ground because people now look at the U.S. and say, well, you're not doing any better. You know, um, you know, unarmed teenagers are being shot point blank in the U.S. You know, you are sitting um, or you are putting your neck on somebody for eight minutes and 46 seconds um, when it's being recorded, when there are multiple witnesses around, when, you know, an individual is screaming out that they're dying, you know, that they can't breathe. And you have this in what we, you know, what everybody thinks is the most free country and the most democratic country in the world. And that is very frustrating because, you know, it, it paints a negative picture on where the world is actually going. Um, you know, I don't think that, you know, every single individual, every person within uh, the government of the U.S. or the police of the U.S. or the army in the U.S. is, is, is racist or adheres to systematic racism. Uh, but it has been an ongoing issue that has existed for, you know, you know, racial injustice in America has been there for hundreds of years now. Um, and what we are just seeing are the fruits of that. We're seeing the fruits of a systematic issue, a systematic disease not being addressed properly. So it, it definitely has impacts in emerging markets. Um, and it definitely, you know, to, to, to any person who wants to go to the U.S., I remember when I was growing up, you know, Everything I saw was American. The movies were American. The music I listened to were American. The magazines were Americans. Uh, the websites I went to were American. Everything I've ever known uh, that influenced my pop culture references and influenced how I think about the world, for the most part, has been American. So it's natural that growing up, I wanted to go to the U.S. so badly. I wanted to go to the land of opportunity and you know, start a business there. But the older I grew and the older I started to learn of all these issues to do with systemic racism and injustice in that country, it didn't seem as pleasing anymore. The American dream that has been promised to so many one color. So that, that, that for the most part has been um, quite frustrating. It has been a very frustrating issue. And I do think that, you know, they can do better. And as a society, whether we're in Africa, we're in Asia, we're in the US, we need to, to, to face the dragon of um, 
discrimination head on. We need to read the word of brutality in any sense. We need to pe hold people accountable when they actually uh, perform these actions. So, you know, as a role model, um, the U.S. definitely has been lagging over the past few years, and it really needs to it really needs to to pull up its socks. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a very great point. The world is a global community, and oftentimes it feels like developed nations forget that countries like the U.S. have a huge influence on how other countries view human rights problems. So when this country that has been a symbol for democracy for decades has been the symbol for opportunity, when it starts being becoming blatantly obvious to the rest of the world that, hey, they're not even upholding these values, they've allowed this these problems of systemic and systematic racism to fester for decades, leaving them men mostly untreated for so long, it leads you to wonder how, how are other countries that look to this nation as a role model going to react? I think, I think you're completely right. Developed nations like the U.S. need to think very thoughtfully about how they interact on the global stage because it is this, we are living in a global community. Issues like climate change and human rights injustices and general inequality affect everybody no matter where you live. And we need to start treating these problems like that is the case because it, it is the case. So bouncing off of, of that point, how can wealthier nations like Canada and the US work to become better global citizens? Yeah, so I really like that question because it, it plays into something I'm quite passionate about. Um, which is, you know, the first time I was in the U.S. was in 2016, and um, I was attending a summer program at Yale University to do with entrepreneurship. And I remember when I got there, um, you know, I had hundreds of other peers, you know, that were like-minded, had brilliant ideas, were entrepreneurial, innovative. And for the first time in my life, you know, being this, um, you know, being this, you know, guy from Zimbabwe at this amazing institution surrounded by all these people from around the world, I felt, um, you know, I felt a great awe that I'd never experienced before. And I felt like anything is possible. I felt like I can, you know, I can do anything and I would have the support of my fellow peers. Um, and what, what that taught me, what that experience taught me is that we need collaboration across borders, across oceans, across, um, across different markets that for us as developing countries in Africa and South America and Southeast Asia, one of the key ways we can develop is this collaborative approach where not only are we learning from, from Westerners and institutions and companies that have done it better, but there's also this shared value of capital, shared value of experience. And speaking of capital, I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about technical skills. I'm talking about being able to transfer technology, you know, from Silicon Valley to some village in Uganda, being able to take, you know, sophisticated financial engineering mechanisms that have demonstrated to work and uplift people from poverty in, in Western markets and apply them in emerging markets in, Af in Africa, you know, collaborating on how best we can actually create this truly global village um, that is connected by, um, you know, ethical standards across uh, finance, across technology and across uh, policy as a whole.
and you know, I, I try to be an individual that's in between. Um, I always try my best to uh, partner with individuals that are across the US, that are in Canada, that are in, you know, in Europe, and try and see how opportunities can then be realized. Uh, I think one of the earlier problems I talked about um, you know, in, in, on, the, on the podcast is how difficult it is to give context to foreign investors on the opportunities that are in Africa. So, you know, one of the key ways uh, Western countries truly can be uh, better global citizens is creating the necessary mechanisms that allow their companies, that allow their investors to see opportunities in all these different places, because truly, um, you know, you know, in, in, emer in emerged markets, in uh, sophisticated markets, a lot of things have already been done and the barriers of entry are very high there. So companies and, you know, financial institutions are now looking at what's the next big thing. And I always believe, and I believe truly that the next big thing is in Africa. Uh, so, you know, creating that infrastructure, creating that policy that allows there to be better collaboration, um, you know, creating that culture that makes it normal uh, for individuals to collaborate with companies and entrepreneurs across uh, different borders. Uh, for me, I see that uh, as an active role that developed countries definitely can take. Um, I think, you know, having uh, the world get rid of poverty, having more people being financially included is better for everybody, for the emerging markets and the emerged markets, you know, because that's how you're going to get bigger markets for your products. That's how you're going to get shared culture. So I definitely see that uh, as an area that countries that have developed uh, should definitely look into, especially, uh, you know, the bigger institutions, the startup ecosystems, the investment cycles. I think that's, uh, I think those are the key areas that uh, developed countries definitely can look into, into getting into. Great. Thank you so much, Victor, for your time today. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this. Hey again, it's your host, Anjali. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of the 2020 show. We have some amazing guests lined up for you from leaders at tech giants, founders, policymakers, and more. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.